If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. So far in the first 12 chapters of this gospel, Matthew has made it very clear to us who Jesus is. That's the main thing that he's been seeking to do. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-expected Savior and King. The one that the Scriptures repeatedly pointed to. And so it's no surprise that Matthew is regularly inserting Old Testament passages in showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of those. Through what he says and through what he does, he shows over and over again. He is the king who has come from heaven, the Messiah, the one who is full of spirit-anointed power and authority. Authority over sickness, as we've seen repeatedly through healings. Authority over Satan, as we've seen very clearly in him casting out demons. He has bound the strong man, so to speak. But also, authority over sin. He is the one, and the only one, who is able to provide forgiveness for our sins. Thank God that the King from heaven has come. And yet, as he walks this earth and encounters people in the Gospel of Matthew, not everybody responds to him in the same way. Some people receive him. His disciples, the twelve, are a clear example of that so far. But others reject him outright. I mean, the Pharisees go so far as to say, you're not doing this by the Spirit of God, all of these amazing displays of power and authority. It is by the power of Satan that you are working. Why is that? Why will some people, when they confront Jesus, receive him, while other people, when they confront the same Jesus, or confront the same stories about Jesus in the gospel, why will they reject the one, the only one, who can deliver them from their sins? That's the main question that we are going to answer this morning, and that's what Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is the third of five large teaching blocks in Matthew. Actually, Matthew is organized around five discourses. We've got the Sermon on the Mount being the first one, the sending out of the twelve on mission in chapter 10 being the second one, and here in chapter 13 we have the third one. It's actually the central one in the book. And what these discourses or these teaching blocks, sermons in a sense, are doing is they're explaining what's happening in the story or the narrative material around the passage. So that's what's going on here. So we wonder, why are some receiving Jesus? Why are others rejecting him? 
And then Jesus stops and he teaches us why it is that that is happening. My passage, I'm going to cover, by the way, the first half of this discourse. Jordan Green next week will cover the second half. My passage has three sections. You can see them if you'll just look at uh, your Bible. The beginning, we find the parable of the sower, verses 1 to 9, or what I'm calling the parable of the soils. Then at the end, verses 18 and following, we see that parable explained. But in the middle, verses 10 to 17, we see Jesus giving commentary on a very important passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. What he's doing here is telling us why he teaches in parables. So what this passage is doing is it's laying out a number of different responses to Jesus' word and to Jesus' work, but then it's telling us why there are these different responses. And this is very important for us as the church, not just for the 12 disciples in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. You see, we have been given a mission to continue the mission of Jesus. It's called the Great Commission. We are called to go to the nations and declare the gospel, make disciples of all people groups. And guess what? It will go with us as it went with Christ. Some will receive Jesus and believe the gospel that we preach, but others will reject it. This text helps us to understand why that is and what we should do about it. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading the first 22 verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear 
with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. To keep things simple this morning... I'm going to combine uh, the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, the parable of the sower and the explanation of the parable. So that'll be the first part of the sermon. And then at the end, we'll look at this middle portion on Isaiah 6. Again, to reiterate, the parable is essentially laying out the various ways people respond to Jesus. It's kind of telling us what we should expect. And then in the middle portion, we're learning the reasons why there are varied responses. So let's begin with the varied responses themselves in the parable. Jesus calls it the parable of the sower, but there's another sense in which we could very well call it the parable of the soils. The reason for that is Jesus is quite clear in his explanation of the parable that How it goes with the seed that is sown is dependent on the condition or the circumstances with the soil. There are four soils that are mentioned in this passage, and they explain the different ways that people will hear and respond to the gospel, but they're really a metaphor for the heart, as I think the center of this passage makes plain. The first soil... The first condition of the heart is the hardened heart. I don't have slides this morning, so if you're taking notes, that's your cue to write down what the first soil is describing, the hardened heart. In verse 19, we read, this is what was sown along the path. The path is the part of the field, presumably around the edges of the field, that have been trampled down with people's feet. The ground has been compacted. It is hard. And so when seed falls on that hard path, there's no way for the seed to penetrate the soil. And so what happens with that seed? Birds come along and they eat it. They snatch it away. What this shows is that those who have a hard heart 
the gospel doesn't penetrate their heart, and then the evil one comes and snatches away the word of the gospel. This is certainly in context in Matthew referring to specific people, to the Pharisees, I believe. They have hard hearts. We learned a little bit about this last week. They, they see very clearly. It's not like they're just getting reports back in Jerusalem about what's going on up in Galilee. They're, they're there with Jesus. They see with their eyes the healings. They see with their eyes the exorcism. They hear with their ears the words that Jesus is saying. And yet, in light of seeing this full in the face, they don't believe. As I mentioned last week, and I think this is right, I think they know what all of this adds up to. Remember, these guys know their Bibles. They know that the things that Jesus are doing are the things the prophet said the Messiah would do. And yet, in their idolatry, in their pride, they are unwilling to bow the knee to King Jesus. Their hearing, although I think they get it with their head, does not lead to faith and repentance. So, a hard heart. The second soil describes a shallow heart. These are the ones sown, as verses 20 to 21 tell us, on the rocky ground. I think what the metaphor teaches us is that the surface of their heart is likely soft, but beneath the surface, it's as hard as rock. Shallow soil is able to contain a lot of moisture, so it will allow a seed to sprout up quickly, but because there is no depth for the roots to take hold, it won't last. So, as the metaphor goes and applies to people, not just to agriculture, when persecution or suffering come along for association with Jesus, these people are not able to stand. They're not able to endure. They may receive the gospel gladly at first and rejoice in the good news. Jesus, really? The Savior has come? To save me from my sins. But when they meet opposition for following Jesus, when they lose their standing with their friends as they move from being a child to a teenager, or when they go to college and they're starting to feel the cost of following Jesus, or maybe as an adult, they get their first job. When the pressure starts to build for being identified with Christ, they bail. I think this is very instructive for those who are engaged in evangelism. Evangelism with people in our community or our missions partners who are engaged in evangelism with people all over the world. But maybe even evangelism in our own homes with our children, or with evangelism in our own church, with our children or other people? How should we respond when we see people showing interest in the gospel? What does this 
soil teaching us? Is it teaching us that we should fold up our arms with skepticism? I don't think that that's what it's saying at at all. I think when a child, for example, shows interest in Jesus and in the gospel and expresses faith, we should encourage that. We should rejoice at that. But I do think this passage is teaching us to not make too much of an initial response to the gospel. The true test of discipleship, this is the point I want to make, is not whether or not a person received the gospel with joy and enthusiasm at some point in the past. I think there are a lot of people that do that. They prayed a prayer. They rose a hand. They filled out a card. They walked an aisle. What, whatever it was. The true test of discipleship is not based off of something that was done in the past. The true test of discipleship is whether or not someone endures in the faith to the end. Whether or not a person is willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus when things get hard. So over the long haul and in the fire we will see what is truly there. The third soil describes a worldly heart. So we've seen a hardened heart, a shallow heart, and now a worldly heart. Verse 22, these are the ones sown among the thorns. They hear the word, and again, I think seem to receive it, but then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches take over and strangle out the word. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting about this third soil, this third example, that's different from the second soil, or second example. In the second example, the shallow heart doesn't endure, and so it withers away. It's no more. But we're not told that with the worldly heart. I believe a lot of people who have worldly hearts are still visible in the church. Their stock of grain is still standing, and yet it doesn't bear fruit. Why? Because there's a competition between the word sown, the gospel, and the world. A competition, to use the metaphor, for water, nutrients, sunlight, you name it. So when you've got thorns growing up alongside of wheat, for example, there's not going to be fruit in the wheat because the nutrients are being sucked out by the things of the world. There is no fruit I think all of this is illustrating what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, that you can't serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. I mean, the thing, the thing about it is, is I think we think we can serve two masters. I think we can do both at the same time. But Jesus says it's not possible. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve the Word and the world. Jesus, friends, is Savior. 
We love that part. But he's also Lord. What were we saved from? Rebellion against God. So does it make any sense that if we have been saved from our rebellion and the wrath of God and have now come into the family of God that we would continue in that rebellion? No, we are saved. But we also are called to submit to Jesus as Lord. I believe there are many people in our affluent society who have heard the gospel, they agree with the gospel, they say they believe the gospel, and I'm not the arbiter of that, just to be clear. But I want to say what the scriptures teach repeatedly, that just because a person says to me, Lord, Lord, does not in fact mean that they belong to Christ. That they have believed truly with their heart and have surrendered to Him as Lord. And one of the tests of that has to do with whether or not the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches have choked out the Word in your life. Now what I'm getting ready to say, I think I misspoke in first service, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. But I just want you to examine where you're at. That's my goal for you. In a country where such a high percentage of people profess faith in Christ, why is it that such a high percentage of those people give next to nothing? Could it be that the love of this world has choked out the gospel of Jesus Christ. The average evangelical Christian gives what percentage of their income away? You guys probably know the stats. 2%. And that's to all charities combined. You know, that, and I'm not, I'm not dissing this, but that's the firemen taking your money in the boot at the curb as well as money to the church and money to missions, 2 to 3%, pretty consistent. But get this, 20% give zilch. Now, there may be all kinds of good factors for that. We see that in, in this church as well. I'm not pointing the finger. All I'm doing is saying, examine the heart of, examine the soil of your heart. What do you love? That is the question. What do you love? Jesus presents four soils, but I believe that they're really, in the end, when all is said and done, when the wheat has been separated from the tares, as we'll talk about next week, there are only two kinds. There's wheat, there's tares. There's those who believe and receive Jesus is Savior and is Lord and who endure all the way to the end and bear fruit. There's that kind. And there's those who reject Him. They may give lip service to faith, but there's only those who receive and only those who reject. What is, there's four types of soil, but what is 
the common denominator in all of the first three. None of them bear fruit. They all have that in common. What did Jesus say last week in chapter 12? Very clearly, those who are his disciples will bear fruit. They will do the will of God. For us, that means we will obey all that Christ has commanded us. It will be seen in what we say. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Or do we stand up for Jesus? It will be seen in what we do with things like our time and our money, on and on. Friends, I am not trying to be grim. I'm just doing what this text does, which deals with three examples of people who have heard the gospel and yet do not bear fruit. But what I think the point of the passage is, is to say to the twelve and to say to us, even though sometimes it seems like there's not a lot of fruit, have confidence some will fall on the fourth soil and will bear fruit. And so what is the fourth soil? The fourth soil describes a good heart. The one who hears the word and understands it. And this understanding, by the way, in Matthew, it is not dealing with, I covered this last week, but I want to reiterate it. It's not talking about whether or not you get it in your head. The understanding in Jesus' words has to do with a heart-level understanding that leads to a life of fruit. Proof of heart-level understanding of the gospel is fruit. Now, that can actually be a discouraging word. I know some of you, personally, that when I talk about needing to bear fruit as evidence of faith, you are feeling really low. But I want you to hear an encouraging word today. What we read is that the seed that falls on good hearts will produce three different levels of fruit, which I think corresponds with the three different bad soils as well. Three different levels of fruit. Some will yield a hundredfold, another 60, another 30. 30, if my research is right, is really not that remarkable. Maybe even under average. You feeling encouraged? <laughs> I know that I am. A hundredfold is remarkable, right? We look at these super Christians sometimes and it can be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Thank God that they're having a bumper crop in their life. And if we're in the 30-fold or the 60-fold thing, praise God that we're not the one in the rocky soil or on the hard soil, that there is no fruit. God is at work in your life. Just as though the person in the first three categories will be proven over time, the same is true with us. Don't look at last week. Look at the last five years. Look at the last ten years. What is God up to in your life? Be encouraged, friends. And yet at the same time, be warned. I think both things are going on in this passage. 
If the shoe fits, wear it. But then also be encouraged as an evangelist. As we go on mission and preach the gospel, some will reject Jesus. Others will receive him. We should expect both. And we know that the reason some will respond positively and others negatively has something to do with the heart. But Jesus has more to say about these reasons for varied response to him in the gospel. And he deals with that in the middle of this passage. So let us turn our attention there. Here the disciples ask Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you, that's verse 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, the word parables, when we think of the word parables, we think of what we see here with the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower. It's a story used to illustrate a point. We often think, oh, Jesus is such a great illustrator. If only my pastor told better stories and illustrations. That wasn't what everybody thought of Jesus' parables and stories. They thought they made the message harder to understand. But actually, that way of thinking of parables is only one way of thinking about what a parable is in the New Testament. A parable is really any type of saying. It can be a a fable. It can be an allegory. It can even be a riddle. Something that is profound. So it comes out of wisdom literature. So it's profound. It makes you stop and ponder. And it's difficult. The disciples are saying to Jesus, why do you speak to the crowds in ways that are difficult? Why is your ministry hard to understand, so to speak, at a heart level, at a head level too? And in verses 11 to 13, Jesus gives an answer that is hard for us to hear. He says this, to you, speaking to his disciples, it has been given. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, not just the parables themselves, but all of Jesus' hard sayings, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear and understand. Then he goes on to quote extensively from Isaiah 6, some of the most difficult words in the New Testament. I mean, if you are understanding what is being said here, you feel the tension It seems as though Jesus is saying that his teaching, his saying, his parables are designed to keep some people out. Like he's saying he's trying to stop up the ears, blind the eyes of all but a select few to keep them from believing the gospel. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Although, that being said, what he is saying is still hard for us to hear. This passage, I am convinced, gets at the very heart of the tension. A tension that the Bible doesn't feel, by the way. It's just we feel as modern readers. 
the tension between God's divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. But in teasing out that tension, this passage is not saying that God is making it so some people do not believe the gospel. What is it saying? Well, if we want to understand this passage from Isaiah 6, which is used throughout the New Testament, we have to understand not only where it's situated in Matthew, but where it is situated within the prophet Isaiah. So I'm going to do that real briefly. Just try and track with me. The context of Isaiah 6 is Isaiah 1 to 5. What's going on in Isaiah 1 to 5? Israel has rejected God as their king. They've rejected God as their king. And instead, they have run after idols. Repeatedly gone after idols. Then we come to Isaiah 6, and what do we see? We see the Lord high and lifted up, seated on His throne, and the train of His robe fills the temple. Right? And there's this vision that even though the people have rejected you as king, you are in fact king. The angels know it. They day and night declare, holy, holy, holy is God. Then what does God do? He calls Isaiah and tells him to go and to preach to this group of people who have already rejected God as their king. That's the context for the quotation that we find in Matthew. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears, they they can barely hear. Their eyes they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. God is saying that Israel is going to hear Isaiah's message, but they're not going to believe it. They're not going to repent. Their idol worship has made them like their idols. Isaiah goes on to talk about that. Their idols are made of wood and stone, and they can't hear, and they can't see. They have rejected God as their king. They have gone after idols, and now they have become like their idols. Isaiah's ministry is not going to make them not believe. It's not going to harden their hearts. Their hearts are already hard. They already don't believe. They've already rejected God. What will Isaiah's ministry do? It will further that. They will further harden themselves against the message of repentance. God is not saying that Isaiah's preaching will create hardness and rejection. It's already there. But, that won't be true of everybody. Isaiah's ministry, as he goes on in verse 13 in particular of chapter 6, we see that his ministry will not only further the hard-heartedness of his hearers, but it will also create a remnant of people who truly believe. The imagery is that his preaching 
slowly but surely will burn down the tree of all of those who have rejected God as king. But there will be a stump that remains, a remnant who is faithful to God. And out of that stump, verse 13 says, will emerge fruit. There will be growth. That's what Jesus has in mind as he quotes this passage. Jesus' teaching and preaching don't create a rejection of him, but they can solidify a rejection that is already there. Jesus is teaching us something very important here, that when anybody rejects God or rejects Christ in the gospel, it's not the preacher's fault. It's not God's fault. We each have our own responsibility before God. And anybody who rejects God is responsible for that. That's the first thing that's being taught. But we are also being taught something here about divine sovereignty. Look at verse 11. Jesus says that the secrets to the kingdom, so the mystery of the gospel that was concealed in the past but now has been revealed in the coming of Jesus, the secrets to the kingdom have been given to his disciples. He is teaching that without God's sovereign initiative, nobody will receive him. In order to understand, God must reveal the mystery of the gospel. Paul teaches the same thing, that our hearts have been hardened by sin. In fact, that we are dead in our sin, and without God's sovereign grace and divine initiative, we will not understand at a heart level the significance of the gospel in such a way that leads to saving faith and produces fruit. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is what? It's the power of God. And that's what we need. We don't need enough virtue or enough intelligence to be able to respond rightly to God. We need the power of God to break through to our hardened hearts so that we can respond in faith and in repentance. And the Spirit-empowered gospel of Jesus Christ has in the past, and it will in the future continue to penetrate hard hearts and to produce fruit. Maybe let me put it this way, in summary of what Jesus is saying. The same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. The same gospel that causes some to dig themselves in even further and harden themselves against God will cause others to repent and to believe and to bear fruit. The same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. I think Jesus wants us to know this as we go on mission. Why? So that we can try and figure out Who's who? No. 
God wants us to know ahead of time that there will be a variety of responses to him. Just like there were in his day, so it will be as the gospel goes forth. Some will certainly and ultimately reject Jesus, but others will believe. We don't know who will see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears about the secrets of the kingdom and who will not. God knows we don't. Our job is simply to scatter seed far and wide, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why do I say that? If salvation is from the Lord, why are you trying to pat it up like a salesperson? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That gospel is the power of God. Not some your best life now or it's all going to be okay. No, it's not going to all be okay. You're going to have to suffer for Jesus. You're going to have to renounce the world and cling to Christ. But you will be given eternal life and forgiveness and a right standing before God. That's good news, friends. Don't be ashamed of that gospel. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then let God do what only God can do. Penetrate hearts with the gospel. Produce fruit, the fruit of faith, the fruit of repentance that will be seen in people's lives. And then guess what? When that happens... If I'm saved, do I get to take credit? No. Do you get to take credit for sharing the gospel with me? No. We are servants. God alone gets the praise and the glory. Let us pray. Father, I am humbled at this word. And I'm very aware that we are completely dependent upon your mercy, your free gift, not only of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, but of the ability to see and to understand, to believe, to hear. And so I pray that for any here who have not yet placed their trust in Christ, that they would come to believe today. And for those who are feeling like they're not bearing fruit, that you would encourage them and that you would work in them that which is pleasing to you in your sight. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.